nobody talks about Pharaoh's pants very often, but they're there. It was her most cherished jewel. I just get sort of um, rather excited by the fact that I'm on the very spot. It's the only one of Fabergé's eggs that looks like an egg. I love this fact they sort of stop for lunch halfway through the rebellion. He actually reaches down into the guy's throat and gets the diamond back. Welcome to History Gems, where if you're a fan of Bridgerton, you're going to love our episode. Today, we're talking about Regency jewellery and the pieces adapted in the popular drama series. I'm joined by Carol Walton of the podcast, If Jewels Could Talk, contributing editor of British Vogue, jewellery editor and author of five books, including her latest, The New Stone Age, out now. I've never met a jewel or a stone that didn't have a story to tell. The Prince Regent took a lot of his taste from Queen Charlotte. She did have beautiful jewellery. She had the famous Arcot diamonds, which she um, left in her will to be sold and the money given to her four daughters, four princesses. But actually, the Prince Regent took them and abducted these diamonds and actually put them in his coronation crown. I watched Bridgerton like everyone else and I mean it was just swept us all away and I think it had this massive global impact and I think a lot of that had to do with um, the fashion and the jewellery and I began to think about it and I thought that that was a great period, the Regency period was a great period of um, social and economic change and I began to draw parallels between those uncertain times which influenced the sort of Regency sparkle that we saw in Bridgerton and what we've been living through and the jewel-loaded runways. Carol, if we can, I'd love to start by talking a little bit about you and I'd love it if you could tell us about where your love for jewellery came from and and how you came to be interested in historic pieces also? I've um, worked with jewellery for so many years and I think I did originally study fashion journalism at the London College of Fashion, now the University of the Arts, and um, I did write for some time about sort of lifestyle and beauty and I, I, I enjoyed it but I really wanted something with, I felt a bit more depth to it and that's what I love about jewellery is that there's so many different aspects to it you have the the designers the design the stones the geology the history the culture and I felt for me that was um, the subject that really engaged me and I found that I could never be bored because there's always something to learn always something to know always something new always something to feed my interest um, and knowledge and so I made that my subject and um, have pursued it relentlessly ever since. That's fantastic and I, I just love the fact that your work and your career has been so varied and encompasses so many different aspects of jewellery. Can I just ask, have you got a favourite a favourite period or a favourite subject or a favourite jewel that particularly stands out for you at all? Well, I think I, I kind of, um, I uh, look at it from the standpoint of 
trying to make it as um, broad a subject as I can. So um, obviously I've been associated with um, fashion magazines for over 25 years. I, I worked at Tatler first and encouraged them to have a jewellery editor. There was no jewellery editor at the time in Condé Nast. Jewellery was considered, I think, underneath shoes and lingerie, somewhere along the accessory <laughs> line. And um, so I made, I wanted it to be an important subject that um, was dealt with as important to tell the, um, the story of dress as much as fashion. I think that's what jewellery does. And um, so I like to link it with other subjects. I like to um, obviously, in what I've done and the styling for many years at Vogue and the stories have been focused really on contemporary and modern and around design and what's new. Um, whenever I can sneak in a bit of history, I do. And in my <laughs> books that I write, that's always got a sort of historical link and a cultural link, which I think is um, really important because that's how we live and that tells um, the human stories Um about jewelry, how we wear it, um, what we what we wear, and and that um, delves into the period in which we live. Yeah. As to a favorite jewel, I just can't go there. There are too many. <laughs> I mean, and I love you know. I'm sort of I say I'm you know like um, I'm so easily persuadable. It's like what I'm looking at or researching at that moment. I'm so enthused by. But if there's a period that I'm always drawn to that always takes me by surprise it's that uh, sort of um, uh, machine age period um, of real sort of art deco when they were experimenting with um, uh, wheels and cogs and that sort of machine age sensibility that came into jewelry and I feel that that is so eternally surprising and modern and when I see pieces from that period um I never fail, but sort of covet them. <laughs> I can completely understand and identify with that. Um, now let's talk a bit about Bridgerton, because you wrote this wonderful piece for Vogue that I found very inspiring and very evocative. And it was about the jewels that were used in Bridgerton. So can you just tell me a little bit about how that piece came about? Well, I think... Um, initially, I watched Bridgerton like everyone else, and I mean, it was just swept us all away. And I think it had this massive global impact. And I think a lot of that had to do with um, the fashion and the jewellery. And I began to think about it, and I thought that that was a great period. The Regency period was a great period of um, social and economic change. And I began to draw parallels between those uncertain times which influenced the sort of regency sparkle that we saw in Bridgerton and what we've been living through and the dual loaded runways um, for um, spring and fall this year and I thought there was a real parallel through the times we were living. Um, I think uh, theirs was a very turbulent age they were at war with Napoleon yeah we were in battle with um, Covid global pandemic um although Bridgerton we saw the flirting and fun of the social season beneath it there was um technology was affecting their everyday life making them quite insecure changing their systems and how they lived because the industrial revolution was cranking up and I think 
we have the same um, with um, technology, social media, and how we're living, which has changed pretty much everything we do and how we do it. Um, people were moving. There was um, improved transportation, new canals, railways, roads. People were living at a faster pace, moving out of their local habitats. Everything was up in the air. And again, I think that fast regency pace is arguably now much faster. But in the same way, we are now cranking up and living at a much faster pace that's affecting our lives. Yeah. Um, and I think the other way that um, the parallels I, I drew was um, steam printing was invented. So newspapers could... Um, increased their production, it led to sort of fashionable novels and scandal sheets to be circulated, and they would um, basically um, discreetly hint at the identity of individuals subject to anonymous gossip. And in Bridgerton, this was shown by a fictional character called Lady Whistledown, who represented these scribblers. And I thought they were they're like sort of early, she was like an early iteration of contemporary trial by social media and blind item blogs, when anything can get said out there and it starts, starts rumours, fake news, gossip. And I thought that was another, another parallel. Um, And also, um, fashion magazines were beginning. Um, There was La Belle Assemblée, a, a British led fashion magazine. And it made people very aware of fashion and style and what they were wearing and um, telling them how to dress and how to behave. And I think this very much like our, our Instagram now, that um, it's so influential and it's it's leading so many fashion-led trends. And I thought that was really comparable as well. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And one of the things that really struck me in your article, and I'm just going to just going to quote something that you wrote because it was something that grabbed me, was you said that jewellery remains a great signifier of society, reflecting the times in which we live. And that was something that really struck a chord with me and I found very interesting. And what I'd like to know is, I mean, in your opinion, did Bridgerton, did they get it right in terms of the jewellery? <laughs> well, it's quite interesting because um, I I do my own podcast called If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Walton. And yes. in a couple of weeks, I've actually um, got one coming up where I talk with um, Ellen Mirojnik, who's the legendary costume designer and designed the whole look of Bridgerton. Oh, with Lorenzo um, Marchenti, who was actually the jeweler on the ground. He's a sort of a master jeweler, really, and prop maker. And I talked to them about how they did this, which is extraordinary because, you know, they were filming all through Britain and um, they couldn't take, obviously, heirloom jewels. A, they probably couldn't find enough. B, insurance would be prohibitive. So they had to make them. I mean, in the first opening scene um, is an amazing um, debutante ball scene where um, the debutantes come and they're introduced to Queen Charlotte. They had to have 35 tiaras. Um, So they found a few in the Swarovski archive, but um, they had to make a lot. 
they had to make a lot of this jewellery. And um, Ellen has what she called a tiara team, scouring <laughs> um, flea markets, um, antique stores. And I thought, I've never doubted my career and my career choice. But when she talked about her tiara team, I suddenly for a moment thought, God, I'd quite like to be on a tiara team. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> scouring to find these pieces. But, um, and part of her ethos was to have accuracy, but, but also to have it look modern. Okay. And so they did do all the research. Um, Lorenzo has a million... Um, books, they went to the National Gallery, they looked at portraiture. They knew exactly the Regency style and then they made it look modern and how they wanted to adapt it. Um, so you don't have at that time, there were so many cameos and pieces of micro mosaic because Napoleon was funding um, excavations at Pompeii, so there were big fashions for that. They don't go into that. But they have the the um, seeming Regency sparkle, and um, they really uh, uh, illustrated that in several ways that were completely accurate to me. Um, I think the one, uh, the first thing that struck me was the sort of excess and extravagance in how they depicted these sort of heirloom jewels that would have been worn at these ball scenes. Um, it was sort of maximalization. Um, these people, um, the Prince Regent adored parties and socializing. And night after night in the season, there were masquerade balls and dances. There were new um, stately houses built. Um, Regent's Park was built. Regent Street, um, pleasure gardens where they go to flirt and socialize. And all this required jewellery and lavish quantities of jewellery. And um, I think that is something that we, we really got, felt that watching Bridgerton. Um, yes. Nothing was ever enough. It was more and more and more. And yeah. um, that was absolutely perfectly depicted. Yeah. I think, um, I think the whiteness, um, again, going back to that opening ball scene that, Every single colour was sort of a shade of between white to vanilla. Yes. Um, the dresses, the jewellery, and diamond jewels were a feature of um, that time during the Regency period when um, candles provided the only light. Diamonds made the most of this limited illumination by sort of, if the candlelight caught the diamond, it would sort of send off sparks around the room. And there was a real sort of whiteness of metal, a lot of cut steel, diamonds, pearls. There'd been new discoveries in Brazil at that time. They'd come across, they'd invented finer ways to cut the diamonds. So diamonds were abundant. Um, there was also a process around that time to back the um, diamonds had been set in silver, which does tarnish. Yes. So there was a new invention to to back the silver with gold. Um, and uh, that was pretty important because there were so many white gowns. 
white gowns were yeah. a status symbol because obviously it showed that you could change your clothes a lot. Your clothes could be washed. You didn't have to wash them. You had servants to do that. So, you know, uh-huh. white had come across, I think, from France, from Napoleon and Josephine. You know, Napoleon um, took his lead in most things from ancient Rome. Um, and um, uh, Josephine was a real star leader in the empire. Um, high-waisted look and and in wearing white so um so I think that whole whiteness was was perfect yeah and that's so presumably then do we see in this period a decline in the popularity of stones like rubies sapphires there's a real preference for diamonds and pearls instead well Gemstones were quite hard, you know, times of war, gemstones are hard to to get hold of. Yeah. Um, because there isn't that, um, uh, you know, there's a, a hold up of um, non-essential items coming into the country. Um, mm. But there was a lot of colour in the way that um, there was paste jewellery. And that's something else Bridgerton got right you know obviously everything they used was sort of diamante crystal faux yes. jewels but that was completely right for the period because there was someone called Friedrich Strauss who invented this way of um uh getting a metal powder and painting it on glass to give it the luster of gemstones wow. and of course you could give um gemstones any color in that way and if people have watched the programme, um, they know that the Featheringtons, the family of the Featheringtons, who are the sort of nouveau riche family, the new money, yes. are quite brash and they wear this colour <laughs> and they have masses of perers of colourful gems. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, that would have been correct from that time using paste jewellery. And the interesting thing is when I talked to Lorenzo, he was absolutely using that method to create these jewels for the Bridgerton. He was using this painting of um, of faux jewels to to create these jewels for the Featheringtons. Oh wow! So and that's also, a really authentic touch. Yeah. So it's an authentic touch, and also at the time it was um, it was absolutely. It wasn't like anyone was trying to pretend they were real jewels when they weren't. It was socially acceptable to have paste jewellery because, as I said, people were travelling more and you didn't want to travel with your best heirloom jewels for fear of highway robbers and Mm. loss and theft. And so it was absolutely um, socially acceptable to take your paste with you. Goodness me. Wow. wow! And what I'm also quite interested to know is you touched on the Prince Regent. Um, but what about Queen Charlotte? Was she considered to be a trendsetter or, or particularly fashionable in terms of her jewels? Or was it all about the Prince Regent at this time? Well, um, I think the Prince Regent took a lot of his taste from Queen Charlotte. I think okay. he, um, he obviously watched watched her and and what she collected particularly in fine French serve porcelain and furniture um, she did have beautiful jewelry she had the famous Arcot diamonds which oh. she um, left in her will 
to be sold and the money given to her four daughters, the four princesses. But oh. actually, the Prince Regent took them and <laughs> abducted these diamonds and actually put them in his coronation crown. And it wasn't until Queen Victoria came to the throne that Queen Charlotte's will was settled and the Arcot diamonds were then subsequently sold. And the people who were to inherit her jewellery did inherit their jewellery because she'd come from Hanover and certain jewels were meant to go back to Hanover. And in the end, the um, King of Hanover had to go to court to get the jewellery back. So um, the Prince wow. Regent did inherit um, this fine taste. You know, he was a leader of, um, uh, took a great interest in design and culture and as I said, you know, work with John Nash to create these beautiful terraces, Regent's Park. And um, he is um, responsible for the amazing Gothic edifice of Windsor Castle that we see today. But he, I think, he had an upbringing, a very, very strict upbringing. And I think now we'd probably call it slightly abused and neglected childhood and that yeah. did um, make him become a person who couldn't control his impulses in any way. And he loved the finer things in life. And that meant drinking to excess. It meant buying to excess. And one of the things he loved buying were what he called trinkets, which were beautiful pieces of jewellery. He couldn't pass a jewellery store without going in to buy a beautiful diamond dragonfly or um Gosh. you know any any amount of beautiful jewelry and um and I think that partly led this as I said this sort of period of maximalization that it was led mm. by him and his his actually own love of jewelry mm. and presumably some of his pieces must still be in the royal collection or were they completely disbanded and broken down as so many jewels um, that's the fate of so many pieces really isn't it that they're broken down and recycled I think especially during this Georgian period um, because as I said there was lack of gemstones for a period of time so there was a lot of recycling and breaking things down and as I said he had um, he um, he had taken the Arcot diamonds and those were subsequently sold he borrowed a lot of pieces. Um, he ran up huge debts. Um, his favourite jeweller was Rundle and Bridge in Ludgate Hill. And um, he would, in fact, borrow jewels sometimes. And interestingly, there was a piece um, a few years ago that was for sale in um, Sotheby's, which was the Maria Fitzherbert jewel. Maria <laughs> Fitzherbert was his mistress um, with whom he had a secret wedding ceremony. Of course, that was never legally um, acknowledged. And he, given his, what we would call his now, his, uh, would probably be pin one of these words um, on his character, like addictive nature. He was, uh, as I said, he couldn't have enough of wine, women, song, jewels. and. Um, he was very passionate in his relationship with Mrs. Fitzherbert. When he wrote her a love letter, 
his obsessive nature. It would be a 42-page love letter. <gasps> when he Goodness. met her and he tried to woo her and she resisted because she was very strong faith, Catholic faith, and he stabbed himself and he sent word to her that he'd rip off the bandages and die if she didn't come to him. Um, one wow. of the, um, he sent her a gift of a gold bracelet with a locket and it was engraved with the words, come together or die. I mean, he, he was a classic obsessive nature. Anyway, this yeah. jewel came up at auction that he had about 11 um, miniatures painted um, of himself and Mrs. Fitzherbert that they gave, um, he gave her images of himself. He kept images of her. And this is something that was um, very important in this period, um, these love jewels of meaning and sentiment. Mm. Um, and I think this really, this type of jewel really shaped the um, visual culture of the Georgian period. And this, um, he had Mrs. Fitzherbert painted on ivory, covered with a portrait diamond. Um, these were large, flat diamonds with facets at the side, so they literally covered this miniature-painted portrait. Sometimes it was a portrait of the face, sometimes it was just the eye. Um, okay. And he had 11 of these painted, and I think the dates correspond with their tumultuous relationship, that it was either on or off, and depending which he would have another portrait jewel <laughs> painted and, and gifted to her. And in fact, he did die with one around his neck. Oh, really? Um, he, um, he had asked in his will, um, which was written, he said, he stipulated that my constant companion, the picture of my beloved wife, my Maria Fitzherbert, may be interned with me, suspended around my neck by a ribbon, as I used to wear it when I lived, and placed right upon my heart. Oh. And so throughout his, his subsequent marriage... Um, his other mistresses, he actually died with this image of Maria Fitzherbert. Um, and I think these, these jewels of that time are, um, are very beautiful. Uh, some of them had, um, had padlocks on with a, with a key to express, you have the key to my heart. Oh, and I thought what was quite interesting, again, with thinking about the parallels between the different periods, was that um, this year we've had so many um, lockdown statements in jewels in the form of jeweled padlocks and keys by mm. Givenchy, Maison Margiela, Hermes. And I think our locks and keys are, are more expressive of this period of lockdown, but um, nonetheless, they are locks and keys. And... Um, correspond with that Regency period yes I mean the, the comparisons that you're drawing they are they are really quite remarkable to to consider um, and and analyze in that way and I mean what the other question I would just like to ask is I mean in terms of and we've spoken about tiaras and and I think with Bridgerton Daphne is obviously very much the star of the show. She always looks beautiful with her jewels. Are the sorts of jewels that she's seen wearing, were they typical for a lady of high society in that period? 
Yes, I think they were quite delicate. They were very delicate and and, um, sentimental, I think. You know, a tiny diamond on her throat, because I think Phoebe Dinevor, who was playing the part, is apparently minute. And (laughs) so when Ellen Morozhnik was dressing her, she had to um, take into account that what was going to look um, suitable for her and her her stature. I also think it was very um, suitable for her as a young single girl who was doing the social season to find a husband. So she wouldn't have worn big grand tiaras because a girl would not have had a tiara until after she married. Um, they weren't four single women at, at that time. And in the ball scene, um, you see there are a lot of hair jewels, um, yeah. particularly on um, Queen Charlotte. There were headdresses were worn very high and they had, you know, for, for married women, the tiaras, they had coronets, bandos, combs in any motif. Um, and you know these things would just sparkle out of these very very elaborate headdresses. Um, so I think it was true, but I think Daphne's Daphne's jewelry was much more um, subtle and low key and pretty okay. and feminine, and I think that suited her age and her status at that at that moment. Yes, very much so. Okay, now. Um, you very you did touch briefly on your own podcast earlier, and I thought now would be a good opportunity for you to tell us a bit more about your podcast and to tell listeners where they can find it as well. Um, well, there's nothing I like better than just talking about jewellery, so thank you <laughs> for asking me on, because as I said, I find it endlessly fascinating. and um, And I thought it's just a lovely new platform to tell stories about jewels. And I've never met a jewel or a stone that didn't have a story to tell. So I started a podcast to encapsulate the old, the new, the stories of romance, um, people, the new contemporary fashion, pretty much everything. And I want to do great collectors, great designers, um, game changers in jewellery. And so um, it started just before the Oscars, with Hollywood Jewels, when I talked with um, Victoria Brunner, who is um, the legendary actor, Yul Brynner's daughter, and the goddaughter of Elizabeth Taylor. And I chatted about that sort of 50s glamour on red carpets and with her and Martin Lawrence Bullard, who is the designer for the Kardashians. And we talked then about contemporary Hollywood and red carpets versus the 50s. So that was fun just before the Oscars. And then um, I've talked to the comedian Catherine Ryan that will be coming out um, this week, uh, who hosts All That Glitters, the new BBC show, um, trying to find Britain's newest jewellery star. So I've talked to her with the judges, Solange Azaguri Partridge and Sean Lean. And um, then I have, who else have I talked to? talked to about Bridgerton. Uh, I've talked to Dr. Jeffrey Post, who is the curator of um, minerals at the Smithsonian Institution. So we talked a lot about the Blue Hope Diamond and bad luck in jewels and what this means, the sort of myths and legends, 
And we talked with jewellery designer Stephen Webster, who has made engagement rings for most A-list celebrities. And of course, a lot of those have got divorced. And it's, does that stone now have bad luck or not? And what do you do about that? (laughs) So we had a really interesting chat about these legends and myths and what it means to a stone and its provenance. And um, uh, and then I also talked with Francesca Amphitheatrov, who is the chief artistic um, director at uh, Louis Vuitton for watches and jewellery. And she and I talked with Frank Everett, who is um, at Sotheby's in New York in charge of jewellery. So there's no magnificent piece of jewellery that hasn't been through his hands. And we discussed um, first lady style. Of course, in Britain, we have the crown jewels, the royal jewels. We have a monarch um, with legendary historic pieces to wear. But what happens in the US or France when the first lady doesn't have access to these jewels? What should, she do? what should her style be? Should there be a national collection? So we talked about uh, topics like that, about first lady style, the difference between French luxury and the US, and um, Jill Biden, Kamala Harris, how, how jewels can give political messaging. So lots of in-depth chats and I hope they're very engaging and interesting whether you like jewellery or not. Um, we, we engage with yeah. topics that um, hopefully um, add to the wider chat about culture. Well they, it certainly sounds like it to me. I can't wait to listen into all of these episodes. And last mm. night I had the exciting news that um, Cher is going to come on and talk <gasps> to me about jewellery. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. That's going to be one to hear. Wow, how amazing. Oh my goodness, you must have been over the moon. How wonderful. Really over the moon. Um, Okay, wow. And And Jane Collins as well is going to talk about her life in jewellery with me. But she's so busy in LA at the moment, we've just got to knuckle down a date. I mean, that's incredible. I'm, as someone who is equally passionate about historic jewellery, this is I'm just yeah I'm so excited I can't wait to listen to all of this so where can we find your podcast where can we tune in to hear all of these incredible Um, stories it's called if jewels could talk with Carol Walton and it's on all the platforms where people usually find their podcasts fantastic that's amazing and we have an Instagram and, and website so um and that's Carol Walton if jewels could talk okay wonderful well thank you so much Carol it has been a huge privilege to have the opportunity to speak with you today and I know that all of our listeners are going to be absolutely drooling and will be tuning into your podcast and really excited to, to hear what you have to say so thank you so much it's been a huge pleasure well thank you for having me Nicola and I hope we'll talk again Um, We'll have to do it on my podcast and we'll continue our chat about historic jewels. Yes, please. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. We'll be posting pictures of some of the pieces featured in Bridgerton on our social media platforms at History Gems Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
Don't forget you can also check out Carol's own podcast, If Jules Could Talk, available in all of the usual podcast places. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to press subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. Join us again soon for another episode of History Gems.